you compare uh, rainfall from 1950 to 1980 and then 1980 to 2010, I think the last one goes to 2012, we've seen a 42% increase in precipitation. And that's just what we're measuring. That's not what the climate model says coming in the future. Welcome to Infinite Earth Radio. We believe that in a world of finite natural resources, a smart and sustainable future is only possible by lifting up people and unleashing unlimited human potential. Infinite Earth Radio will not only help you learn from bright, visionary civic leaders who are building smarter, more inclusive and sustainable communities, but you'll discover how you can bring these ideas to your community. And now, here are your hosts, Mike Hancocks and Vernice Miller-Travis. Welcome back to Infinite Earth Radio, where we interview thought leaders and change agents who are transforming the future by building smarter, more sustainable, and more equitable communities. If you want to learn more about the topics discussed on today's show, you will find show notes and links to our other podcast episodes by going to our website at infiniteearthradio.com. In light of the challenges being faced by the residents of Flint, Michigan, we are doing a short series of shows looking at the state of water infrastructure in the U.S. and some of the innovative approaches being taken to address these challenges. Our topic today is integrated water resource and infrastructure management. And our guest today is Matthew Nod, environmental coordinator for the city of Ann Arbor, Michigan. Matthew, welcome and thank you for taking the time to be with us today. Oh, thanks so much for having me. So maybe we can start with explaining what your job as environmental coordinator for the city of Ann Arbor entails. Sure. In 2000, the city of Ann Arbor created an environmental commission. It's actually written into city code. And I think the idea was they wanted a staff person who could support that commission and also work on a broader range of environmental issues at the city. So I was hired by the city in 2001 after several years as a consultant and spend about 10% of my time supporting the Environmental Commission. And then gradually the jobs expanded where I'm, I'm more of a sustainability coordinator for the city or sustainability director and work on a wide variety of sustainability projects for the city. You see, you mentioned that you had been a consultant before, but maybe you could give us a little bit about your personal background and what motivates you to do this work. Sure. Probably never expected to be a sustainability person when I started. I have a master's in biology from Michigan. Started doing molecular biology work. My wife wanted to do this thing called public policy that brought us back to Michigan. Long story short, I went through the public policy program there and took a job with a consulting firm with EPA as a major client and really got exposed to the broader environmental and sustainability issues and had moved back to Ann Arbor and was telecommuting and the job opened up and having worked oh, 10, 11 years at the federal environmental policy world, Ann Arbor is a great place to work on local environmental policy issues. Your session at the new Partners for Smart Growth Conference was titled From Trickle to Torrent, Resilient Strategies for an Uncertain Water Future. Can you tell us a little bit about that session and the objectives? Sure. There were a variety of folks there, both from, you know, like Ann Arbor, we're pretty much a water-rich community, but are facing some significant water challenges with climate change, and we could talk more about that. 
But there were also folks like Nicole Woodman from Flagstaff and the gentleman who runs El Paso County, it's Fort Collins in Colorado, drier communities that are facing, again, a changed climate with fires that then scorch the earth. And then they have torrential rains and all that. There's nothing to hold the soil down and they're having torrential floods. So I think the idea was to come up with several panelists who could show how are your communities looking at a more integrated approach to managing water and what kind of lessons learned can you share with some of the other folks there at the conference? So what kind of water or climate change challenges is Ann Arbor facing and what are you doing to meet those challenges? Sure. We're fortunate. We have the University of Michigan right in the middle of town and we work a lot with It's called the Graham Sustainability Institute, and they have a climate center. And so for about the last five years, we've been working together. One of the things that they've uh, demonstrated is if you compare uh, rainfall from 1950 to 1980 and then 1980 to 2010, I think the last one goes to 2012, we've seen a 42% increase in precipitation. And that's just what we're measuring. That's not what the climate model says coming in the future we've seen a significant change in the amount of rain. Also, if you look at the 1% storm, the most extreme storm in that first 30-year period, and how many more times has that happened in the next 30-year period? Similarly, extreme storms are up 40%. So that's what we're measuring, and it's been great information as we go out to the community and share some of our thinking about how we're going to need to adapt, what kind of investments we're going to need to make, both in the gray and green infrastructure. And again, I can talk more about that, but those are the significant changes we're seeing. We're also likely to see more high heat days. Haven't kind of felt those yet, but those that's another thing that we're working on. So, yeah. So what is the solution to that problem? What, what are you doing to deal with the increased uh, amount of precipitation that you're getting? And what are the implications to the community of of that increased precipitation. I'm going to talk about a few things. These are not things that I designed. I have to give a lot of credit to the colleagues that I have and the visions that they had many, many years ago. So we've had a stormwater utility for quite a while and in 2006 redesigned it to be a a true utility. So we use near-infrared flyover data. It tells you what's photosynthesizing, what is pervious surface, and what's hard surface. We calculate pretty much down to the square foot for every parcel, and we put folks in one of four bins. And so we basically charge people as part of the stormwater utility for the amount of impervious surface they have. And because it's a utility, you have to be able to use more or less of it. We then credit people for installation of rain barrels, rain gardens, If you tear up your driveway and put in porous pavers, we'll give you credit for that. Similar on the commercial side. So this starts setting up a very equitable way to raise funds to then invest in the both gray and green infrastructure needs that we have. So that's repair the stormwater pipes, but it also means that if we're rebuilding a road, and we need additional funds to put in a series of rain gardens all along the area between the sidewalk and the street, the stormwater utility can help fund that. Similarly, we're funding more of the urban forestry, the street trees along the street. We have about 50,000. 
we can calculate that we would need bigger pipes if those trees were not there and so are now have a more stable funding source for some of those urban forestry expenses. So finding sustainable funding is one of the key things that cities need to do if you're going to kind of really take a long-term view and tackle these problems, you're going to have to figure out a way to finance them. To step back for maybe for some of our listeners who don't understand kind of the the challenge of the increased rainfall and the increased runoff. Can you explain to our listeners why that's a problem and why you needed to create this stormwater utility? Sure. Well, we design a stormwater utility to a certain standard. And for us, it's a 10-year storm, the storm that happens that's statistically supposed to happen once every 10 years. With an unchanged climate, you could pretty much look backwards and say, what's that storm look like? And assume that storm's going to happen in the next 50 to 100 years. Well, we know that storm has changed. So we need to figure out a way to either redesign a system to meet with a new 10-year storm or go out to the public and tell them that they need to change their expectations. One of the things that we recently did was spend about a million dollars calibrating our stormwater model. So we now have a model that we can get really granular data so we can go into a neighborhood, take a look and say, if each of the hundred houses in this neighborhood put in a rain garden, here's how that would affect how the stormwater system works. So really have a tool to balance do we need to put in bigger pipes and just shoot this water downstream and make it someone else's problem? Or is there a way we can use green infrastructure, especially in our high flood prone areas, to either reduce or eliminate certain types of flooding? We're always going to have flooding in a hundred year storm. What we're trying to do is say, we might be able to get rid of some of the 20 year storm events that are create flooding for some of our residents with some investments that aren't just bigger pipes or bigger stormwater detention ponds. So if you didn't manage this stormwater runoff and you you got this increased volume, other than putting a lot more water, what are the implications of not managing the water? What What are you trying to prevent from happening by managing the water? Well, flooding is the main thing that our residents see, you know, water gets up in basements, things like that. But with higher amounts of precipitation, and this water then hit creeks, more erosion, that's more sediment into the river. With a lot more water, we're going to get a lot more runoff. Any of the chemicals, things like that, will just run to the river without any treatment at all. Whereas creating these bioswales, detention ponds, creates an opportunity for the water to rest there and settle before it's released further downstream. And there's a lot of opportunity for biological systems to treat some of the things that we don't want to go into the river directly. And so it really is both a water quantity remedy, but also a solution to improve the water quality that ends up in the river. And then part and parcel is is part of the problem in Flint, correct? That it's not just the pipes that are an issue in Flint, but the source of the water that is being used is a degraded river. It's a river that's the water quality is has been degraded over some period of time. Is that is that accurate? Yeah, I mean it's a number of these cities we have in Michigan, and I think it's true across the United States. 
even with the Clean Air Act in the 1970s, some of these rivers really still have challenges. We're fortunate. We make our own water. We're the first city west of Detroit that doesn't use the Detroit water system. And we use surface water from the Huron River. And in, the good news is it's the we refer to it as the cleanest urban river in Michigan. So while we have challenges, we don't have similar challenges to Flint. You know, I think a lot of cities, especially cities with declining population, Flint, Detroit, they built infrastructure to handle, you know, I think Detroit, it was designed to handle 2 million people and there's six or 700,000 there. So you've got all this infrastructure that needs to be maintained without the same number of individuals and the tax base that it would take to support it. These are some real challenges. Ann Arbor has been fortunate that our economy has been more stable. Relatively speaking, it's a wealthy community. And I think our utilities have done a good job looking ahead and slowly raising rates to make sure that there's enough money in place for the necessary infrastructure investments that we need to make. Because a lot of these pipes went in 80 or 100 years ago. I don't think we have any wood pipes left, but a lot of these cities, there's really old infrastructure there. And unless you've really looked ahead and, and socked money away, it's going to be a challenge replacing it in the future. Yeah, absolutely. And and I think that just to kind of finish the point is that the, I don't know that people always make the connection that you know the climate change leads to increased rainfall, which then impacts the quality of the water because of the runoff and, and those kind of issues. I think Ann Arbor's been very forward thinking with regard to both how to manage that, but also how to fund the changes and the and the investments that need to be made in that system. Are there many other communities that you're aware of that have created a kind of a, this stormwater utility and taken this approach that Ann Arbor has? You know, there's a lot of communities with stormwater utilities, not as many in Michigan. And I don't think any of them in Michigan are as kind of well-designed as ours is to both make sure it's fair and equitable and also that it's bulletproof to lawsuits. We've had uh, local counties sue local cities over what they refer to as a rain tax. And part of it is because they were just charging $25 a parcel and it really wasn't a system they could use more or less of. And I think we went to great lengths to try and design a system that was truly a utility and would have a long, sustainable life to fund the work we need to get done to manage the challenges we're facing. And how long have you had that, has Ann Arbor had that system in place? The kind of redesign system with the flyover data and lots of GIS since about 2006. Great. Did it face any legal challenges or real political pushback? It is not to date. I think, again, we're fortunate we've got a really well-educated community. And I think folks here before I got here had done a really good job sharing this information. We do a lot of public engagement here in Ann Arbor. And so I think when it went through, it had a strong political base and a support from city council. And I think people look around and they see some of the big infrastructure projects that we've done and then a lot of the green infrastructure that's put in, and it's very visible with kind of rain gardens up and down rebuilt streets, 
where that runoff can go into rather than running right into the storm sewers. And we're also fortunate we do not have a combined sewer system. So we're not faced with that CSO challenge that a number of other communities are facing. Do you approach any of your other infrastructure in this way? As there, you know, this is seems like a fairly innovative approach that you've taken with the stormwater. Is funding the rest of your infrastructure equally challenging? And have you done anything innovative with regard to how you're doing that in Ann Arbor? Well, one thing I'd mention is our water utility. I get asked all the time, what's your water conservation strategy at the city? And while our we have a really strong relationship with a couple of local NGOs, the Huron River Watershed Council has been a tremendous partner, and we actually fund their work in educating the community about stormwater, both within the city, but we also pay to fund stormwater education in upstream communities because that's our source water. One of the things we've done with the water system is we've just priced water uh, appropriately. And so as we redesigned the water rates, we now use something called an inclining block rate structure. So with the idea that how much water does it take for a family of whatever to get up, bathe, feed itself, get off to work every day, and that water ought to be cheap. And so we charge by the 100 cubic feet of water. So the first seven CCFs of water, and I forget what the rate is right now, but it's close. It's like a dollar seven for those first seven units. As soon as you go to eight, it becomes $2. And eight through 20 something is $2. And as soon as you go above that, it's $3. And what we found is that we're a system that's about 19 million gallons a day. That's the average, but on peak days, hot days in August, when people are watering lawns, pools, things like that, the high days were up in the like 38 million gallons. So we had this system that was much larger than we needed for an average day. With the And so the prices reflect that the people who are the heavy water users ought to be paying for the reason we have a very large system. The interesting thing is once we change pricing, the way we price water, our peak day has not gone above 28 million gallons a day. So we've seen a significant reduction in water use just based on pricing it right. And I would argue folks are still paying a lot more for their cable bills and their phone bills than for this life-giving resource that we provide to them right at their house. Yeah. So what's the quantity of water that you're giving people for a dollar? I think it's the first 700 cubic feet of water. So 700 cubic feet of water is, you know, like $8. Right. And that's, is that 700 gallons? How much, you know, is it in terms of gallonage, how much water is that? I'd have to go back and get my calculator. I think a cubic foot of water, I'm going to be guessing. So I want to be careful. We might have to come back and do the math. It's like 7.8 gallons in a cubic foot. Right. So let's just say it's it's seven gallons. So seven times seven hundred, it's it's like five thousand gallons of water that people are getting for eight dollars, which they could get about four bottles of pints of water from the seven eleven. Right. Yeah. Right. And you know, I think a bottle of water is about six hundred times the cost that it would cost out of the tap. Gotcha. You know, these approaches that you're taking in Ann Arbor, is there any reason why they're not broadly transferable to other places? On a practical note, no. I think on a 
political note, cities that were once rich and are not as rich now are going to have a harder time raising rates. And so I think to the extent you can implement some of these strategies when times are good, you'll be in a much better position as you know your economy goes up and down. Again, we've been fairly stable, but even Ann Arbor, you know, I started in 2001, there were a thousand employees and we're down to about 720 now. Wow. And so do you get many folks asking you how you do it? Do you get many folks learning from Ann Arbor's approach? Yeah, I think so. We regularly talk our, you know, the guy who runs our stormwater system was head of the state stormwater association. And we speak at conferences, share what we, you know, it's the nice thing about cities. We don't have intellectual property. We're happy to share and even enjoy saying that City X is modeling what they're doing off what we're doing. So our staff spend a lot of time, I think, sharing what they know across a variety of networks of cities and utility programs. I think it takes time. You know, I try and remind people that We started picking up curbside recycling in 1978. So it's been a long time that people in Ann Arbor have been educated about recycling and things like that. And these, you just got to be in it for the long haul. But looking at some of the good models, I think you can get to where we are in a much faster way. Are there any other cities in Michigan that are have a stormwater utility? There are. I think there are nine or 10, and I can't tell you which one's right off the top of my head, but I don't think any of them are quite as kind of data technology rich as the one we have. Great. So if our listeners wanted to learn more about what you're doing in Ann Arbor, is, is there any place they can go or how could they learn more? Sure. Always reach out to me directly. You can go to the city of Ann Arbor's website and click on sustainability or environment. If you go to a2gov.org slash storm, you'll learn all about our stormwater system slash recycle, all about our recycling systems. And if you just search for sustainability in Ann Arbor, you can see our kind of broad sustainability framework and action plan that we're developing. Great. Fantastic. So Matthew, just a couple of, we call these the lightning round questions there. We ask every guest basically the same three questions and they're kind of designed to be shorter answers. Sure. If you could implement one change or pick one leverage point that would lead to smarter, more sustainable and more equitable communities, what would it be? Oh, I think state funding networks of cities. We've got a lot of small cities that'll never have sustainability directors and most of them don't have funding to get out to conferences. And I think Building these networks of peer learning communities with cities and townships could go a long way to furthering getting these communities more sustainable and more equitable. Great. And so what one action could our listener, the average citizen who maybe doesn't work in government, isn't a planner, isn't a politician, what could they do to help build a more equitable and sustainable future? Write to their local council people and make sure they have an environmental commission or some mechanism for members of the community to make recommendations to elected officials on some of these sustainability projects they'd like to see in their community. And if you are successful in the work that you are doing, what does Ann Arbor look like 30 years from now? Wow. Um, Well, 30 years from now, probably at least 50% renewable energy, a brand new connector that has light rail running from one side to the other, and ideally a distributed 
district heating and cooling system so we can use energy in a more efficient way. I mean, our big challenge is getting more renewables and more energy efficiency, and we don't own a public utility. So, you know, I think it's going to look a lot the same, just it'll be a lot easier to get around and there'll be low carbon methods to do it. Fantastic. Matthew, thank you so much for the great work that you're doing. And thank you for taking the time to be with us today. No, I really appreciate the opportunity. Thanks for doing this. And we want to thank you all for listening. And we look forward to seeing you all again on the next episode of Infinite Earth Radio. Infinite Earth Radio is a podcast produced by Skio in association with the Local Government Commission. To learn more about Skio, the Local Government Commission, Infinite Earth Radio guests, or how you can make a difference in your community, visit our website at infiniteearthradio.com or join us on Facebook at www.facebook.com forward slash infinite earth radio and Twitter by following at infinite earth radio. 